Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Now, a lot of the women that came through our support group were women who had professional careers in law, social work, nursing, etc. And some of them could never, ever go back to work. 
And when we started to talk to them about some of the ongoing issues, it was that they couldn't remember things, they couldn't retain knowledge, they were getting frustrated with themselves, but other people were getting frustrated. That's Betty Taylor. She's the CEO of the Red Rose Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation in Brisbane that works to address the high number of domestic violence-related homicides and suicides in the community. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. I read a piece during the week from an outlet called The Marshall Project, which publishes news and opinion about the American justice system. The title was How to Save True Crime, so you can see why I was drawn to it. I was surprised that the author believed true crime needed saving, but not by the fact that the author was a man. His name is Maurice Schummer. You may or may not be aware that the global true crime audience is made up mostly of women. It's about a 70-30 split, but that's enough to make a certain kind of man very uncomfortable and feeling like he needs to explain to us that we're wrong to create communities around these stories of violence perpetrated generally against other women, generally by men. Among his concerns, Maurice wonders if the true crime boom has, quote, rotted women's brains with paranoia. In case you're wondering, Maurice believes that the only valuable true crime narrative is that of wrongful conviction. Obviously, we disagree, and today's episode of Australian True Crime is an excellent example of why. As the Red Rose Foundation website says, so many of the domestic violence deaths that happen every year in Australia have predictive elements that make them highly preventable. The Red Rose Foundation's motto is change the ending. For me, the great value of reading, watching and listening to true crime content is how much I've learned from it. For example, because of true crime, I now know that even one episode of non-fatal strangulation is considered a significant risk factor for a woman being seriously assaulted again in the future and even killed by her partner. What I didn't know, though, is that serious strangulation injuries don't always leave marks. And victims oftentimes don't even know they've been subjected to a strangulation episode. It's one of the areas the Red Rose Foundation focuses its attention on because not only do we need to get the messaging out there, but there's so much more we all need to learn about non-fatal strangulation. Most of our first responders don't know the signs to look for or the questions to ask. Betty Taylor has been working with victims of domestic violence for 30 years. So we started this conversation by talking a bit about her amazing career. Okay, so I've been working in the domestic violence field um, now for about 34 years. So my journey there started um, in working in a women's shelter and did that for a long time. And then in 92, I set up the Gold Coast Domestic Violence Service, which was a shopfront counselling crisis intervention service, and evolved from there. So I've been doing this work a long time. Um, in 2002, um, 20 years ago, I was fortunate to do a Churchill Fellowship study domestic violence interventions in the US. Mm. And a wonderful woman in San Diego, Gail Strack, 
um, who's the, become the guru in strangulation, she asked me, what do you do in Australia if women are strangled? And I sort of had a blank look on my face. And I said, oh, women might talk about being choked. And she said, no, strangled. And I said, well, what's the difference? And she explained it. And I said, I don't think we do anything. You know, and I came back and, you know, talked to a few colleagues and I said, like, this just shocked me that, you know, I did a workshop over there on it and came back and thought there's nothing. And, you know, I did my own inquiries. There was no legislation anywhere in Australia that addressed it. There was no one even talking about it. So it has been a 20-year journey to get to where we are now, but still a way to go. I still don't think people are really talking about it properly. That's what I've learned. Mm. I think one fact that has entered the consciousness is this idea that offenders, men who use strangulation as part of domestic violence, are much more likely to go on to commit further attacks and, in fact, even even to kill people. That's Mm. correct, right? That's right, yes. Uh, So that is good news in terms of the fact that 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 fact has, I think, infiltrated our culture. I think more people are aware of that fact. However, you're going to tell us some other facts today that are astounding and that I don't think, well, I certainly had no idea about until, until recently, until I was part of making a video, an educational video about it. But I think something that has started to infiltrate our culture is this idea. I've seen recently two... I'm going to call them influencers, two young women who have used their social media to talk positively about using strangulation in sex. And even one of them was had a link to a product that could be used and another one giving instructions about it. And, and as I say, these are both very cool young influencers with lots of social media followers. So are you aware of that? And what do you make of that? I don't know the particular people you're... you're talking to but I am aware that a lot of people do this and even in Queensland back in 2016 when we um, successfully got a piece of legislation around strangulation and it's strangulation in a domestic violence setting one of the things in that legislation that we're not happy about and we've been advocating for change ever since is the words strangled without consent and that came from the lobby groups that are saying people can consent to strangulation and um, so our legislation and it's probably one of the few in the world that's got the absurd notion that with consent and the position we take to is you even if um the sexual aspect is consenting, people consenting to sex, consenting to strangulation is a whole other thing. And we take the position you can't consent to something that could potentially kill you. Mm. That unless people know all of the risks associated with strangulation, and we have huge concerns, I guess, with the rise of pornography and the advocating of strangulation within that and, you know, people not be really informed of the implications of that. I would assume as well that it would blur the lines potentially when it comes to reporting that an offender might be able to suggest later that he was not using strangulation in an aggressive way but in a sexual way that 
was consented to. I've heard it described, Betty, as the rough sex defence. And in New Zealand, a woman called Grace Mullane, a British woman, was murdered and her killer said, oh, she asked me to be strangled um, or choked and her past sexual, you know, relationships were looked at as part of that, but in the end he was convicted. But I've definitely seen a lot of stuff in the UK talking about getting rid of this rough sex defence, for want of a better word for it. Yes, and the UK are going to, you know, move legislation so that that can no longer be a defence. You know, we say that, you know, there's laws around sexual activity. We've had a lot of discussion about consent laws of what people are consenting to, and we talk a lot about informed consent but we haven't even gone there with strangulation about what would informed consent look like, that if someone's saying they want to participate in strangulation, then, you know, how informed are they of the risks? And I think the second part of that is that people aren't talking about is strangulation in an intimate relationship is very much a gendered crime, that Queensland 98% of the charges and convictions involve the strangulation of women. And, you know, the women that come through our centre that some of them were strangled during non-consenting sex and some through consenting sex, but they were not informed of what strangulation was. They had no idea of the potential harm it could be. And I think when we talk about the dangers of strangulation, it can come from, obviously, those perpetrators fit into a very high-risk category, but it can also come from what we call a, a high-harm form of violence where women can have really adverse health consequences, including um, death and stroking months later, months and months later. I had no idea at all about this issue of non-lethal strangulation and the consequences of this until recently when I went to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and I took part in the filming of a video, an educational video, that's aimed at first responders, ambulance people, paramedics, even frontline people, nurses and stuff at emergency wards because evidently a lot of those workers aren't aware of the kinds of injuries that can be present, internal injuries, when a woman presents after an attack and she has no external signs of injury around her neck. And so it's really important that these questions are asked of, of a woman after an attack so that she takes the time to think about whether or not her airways have been restricted during the attack, either by the sort of traditional choking method that we imagine with the hands or with a forearm with a anything with a chair with with anything if if anything's been placed across her neck at any point and we know that during an attack there's a lot there's a lot going on a, a woman can be shocked frightened thinking about protecting children all sorts of issues that can make it hard to remember frankly afterwards exactly what happened and for how long and she can have been unconscious but it's very important to try and ascertain if her airways were restricted during the attack. So can you explain to us, please, the kinds of risks that are involved and the potential injuries that can have been sustained internally, even if there are no signs externally? Yeah, sure. So you're right in saying it's the constriction of airflow, but it's also blood. Mm. And people will die a lot quicker if there's anything that interrupts that blood flow. And that can come from 
what they call a carotid dissection. So where the carotid arteries mm. can even have just the smallest tear in them that would um, cause nearly a catastrophic um, blood clot to the brain or to the lungs. Um, sometimes two people think it's an attack from the front. Someone's got the hands around the throat, but they can come from behind. And one of the women in our um, study that we've been doing, you know, said she never called it strangulation because he grabbed her from behind. They can have them in a headlock. They can have them in, um, you know, even, um, you know, some of the states in the US and Hawaii comes to mind where they talk about mechanical strangulation where someone sits on the upper part of their chest and can still block that airflow that goes through to the um, brain and the lungs. So it's sort of um, recognising, I guess, that strangulation itself takes many forms. You know, it could be the two, two hands, one hand, sideways. You know, that famous case um, in America with uh, George Floyd, you know, with a knee to the throat. So all of those things would fit under a category of strangulation. I guess the information has to get out. The video that you were involved in producing, you know, I absolutely applaud that. I think that the more we get out the education and, and information, but to women themselves, you know, just the dangers of it, often they will not realise how serious this is. They might take it lightly, and if the people around them aren't informed, they will as well. So one of the things that we have done up here is work with Queensland Ambulance around um, education and training, and we're saying, you know, if the police go out to a domestic violence incident involving strangulation, they really need the advice from ambulance that the police aren't medicos to make that assessment if someone's going to be okay. Because a CT scan's really the only way to know, isn't it? That's the CT angiogram, I guess, is what they call gold standard. Mm. We are mindful of lots of places in Australia that though access to those sort of testings aren't readily available, you know, remote areas, rural areas. But we need to inform anyone working in the medical profession and if need be, women can be transported to more regional centres where they can have that testing done. Betty, is it a case of having specific questions to ask or getting certain information from women who present who may not actually understand that something adverse could have happened, you know, as a result of, of injuries or attempts to injure them? Oh, for sure. Look, we would never ask a woman if she's been strangled because we take it that she's not aware of that. But we would say, you know, has anyone ever put their hands or other equipment around your neck or your throat, you know, things like scarves, mm. telephone cords, etc. not necessarily always their hands. Have you any ever had any adverse effects from that? And we might go through the things that they're looking for, anything from headaches to raspy voice to that feeling of dizziness. The big question, though, is also how often do you think this might happen? And I asked a woman recently, you know, how often do you think your partner does this to you? And she said, do you mean in a day? And I was quite shocked. And I said, well, yeah, let's talk about a day. Let's talk about a month. And she thought, you know, over the last few months, maybe 30 times. And 
So we've got to move on from seeing it too as just this one-off offence that happens. Our experience in Queensland with the specific piece of legislation that, you know, the amount of offenders that might get charged for more than one incident of strangulation is very rare, and yet we know women are suffering, you know, multiple, multiple. It's not a one-off offence. And so that's the next step that we've got to inform people that this is a type of behaviour and we call it their, their modus operandi, you know, that once they move to strangulation, then they will be doing that repeatedly. Is it that if they're moving, escalating to that type of behaviour, the modus operandi, is the next step typically potentially fatal? It can move to lethal violence, but it may be that that person kills them or that that person can die later. And we have, unfortunately, in Australia, you know, unless someone dies there and then or the next day or so, it's not classed under, you know, a strangulation death. If someone dies of a stroke months later, then often it's not linked back to that type of violence perpetrated on them. So, you know, the amount of deaths we have is really unknown. I sit on the Queensland Domestic Violence Death Review Board and we now look for strangulation in case notes from, you know, police and hospitals, service providers that may have been a risk factor prior to that death. That is increasing the knowledge we know of that, but it's only going to be there if it's documented, not just by police, but hospitals, social workers prior to that death. Yeah, so that's a recent development. So up until recently, so many deaths would never have been related back to the strangulation wow. incident that actually contributed to them. Absolutely not. Said it was a stroke or yeah. a, something like that. Yeah. Wow. And the two pieces of, of, of research that we draw on, one came out of Victoria, out of Big Health, that 61% of women that are hospitalised with a domestic violence injury, those injuries are from the neck up. So, you know, it's pulling out of those what may have been strangulation or other injuries that sometimes they go together. So we talk a lot about brain injuries. So the lack of oxygen to the brain, you know, can cause anoxic brain injury, but they can also have concussion, but 61%. The other piece came from the, the US that found that women 40 and under who stroke the leading cause of stroke was strangulation. So they're pretty mm. both pretty um, scary statistics, I think, for women that we need to move and do something. Mm. So in Australia, we're only now starting to look at the brain injury. We had a forum on it last year, but we've got so much more to do. And what led us to that was the women coming to us have been referred for post-traumatic stress or trauma. We do a lot of trauma counselling, but we've also found women where it was more than that. And they are women who now since have been diagnosed with various forms of, of brain injury from mild to severe, where they, you know, and the frustration, I guess, that that causes, you know, a lot of the women that came through our support group were women who had professional careers from, you know, in law, social work, nursing, etc., And some of them could never, ever go back to work. 
And when we started to talk to them about some of the ongoing issues, it was that they couldn't remember things, they couldn't retain knowledge, they were getting frustrated with themselves, but other people were getting frustrated when they couldn't turn up to appointments on time. You know, they'd forget a lot of stuff that they were previously told. They talked about living with memory fog. And so that's something women get trapped in that, that's there for life, really. Do you think it's similar to CTE, the concussion issue that they talk about with footy players? It's sounding similar to those symptoms. Yeah, well, well uh, sometimes with strangulation, they, they have both. Um, mm. You know, they'll have that um, anoxic brain injury with the oxygen not flowing to the brain, but they can have that concussion, uh, you know, with a couple of cases that come to mind with women where while he's strangling her, lifting her off the ground, he's also bashing her head into a wall while he's doing it. Yeah. Um, another woman was um, strangled and then thrown down a, a flight of stairs. Mm. So, or they can be rendered unconscious and when they fall, hitting their head onto tiles or coffee tables, etc. So it's quite common that they may have both forms of injury as companions to each other, I guess. There's a lot of work being done around women and concussion and how injuries present in women and girls with Australian rules football. My daughters play and there's universities doing it and it really does present differently to how it does in boys and men. Absolutely. I think that um, women themselves, unless they've got a serious head injury, that's picked up straight away as that. But women may not recognise things straight away that, you know, why can't I remember things anymore? Why can't I function like I used to? What's this fog I've got? And I guess unlike other forms of concussion, they're terrified of things that that may bring back those triggers for the strangulation. For instance, two of the women that have been in our group are nurses and continually wearing the face masks and the ones that come down Mm. around their throat, they're finding that really traumatised to be able to do that. Mm. You know, women talk years later of not wearing jewellery, not wearing scarves, waking up at night just feeling they can't breathe, feeling someone sitting on top of them. They're dealing with a whole lot of the, the trauma and the impacts and the triggers as well as the brain injury itself. We'll be back in a moment with Betty Taylor, the CEO of the Red Rose Foundation. And as I said at the start of the show, it's a not-for-profit organisation. You can learn more about what they do by visiting their website, redrosefoundation.com.au. And you can also make a donation when you get there to help them keep doing it. There's a link in our show notes, of course, and on our Facebook page. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you to our patrons, Katrina Jenner, Katie Woods, Wayne Ritchie, Megan Priestley, Molly Woodstock, Jackie Moradi, Toshi, Sean, Annette, and H. There are still a couple of tickets left to come and see us live at the Yarraville Club on April 8 with Narelle Fraser. Coincidentally, we've decided to talk a bit that night about male victims of domestic violence. It's a topic we've wanted to talk about for a very long time, and the conversation we have that night will not be broadcast as a podcast. So the only place you can see it and participate in it will be live on the night at the Yarraville Club. There's a link in the show notes so that you can buy your tickets to that event. Betty, can you talk to us about this idea that a number of women have raised... I've found myself in this conversation a bit in in the last little while about women realising they've been abused, realising they're in an abusive relationship because that can sound nonsensical to other people, realised is the word they use, that they're in a domestic violence situation. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, sure. You know, and probably a couple of ways to answer that. You know, there's a lot of talk now about coercive control. And what does that mean? I mean, that's a great place to start because that can be a really confusing phrase. And you're right, it's brought up a lot. And a lot of people, myself included probably, don't really understand what that means. Yes, well, I'll go way back to 1984 and Ellen Pence wrote a lot about it and called it parent control. And I think that probably describes it a little bit better. So saying to women, it's not about arguments, but it's about who's got the power in that relationship, who controls everything. And, you know, whether we call it that or coercive control, you know, it's not about doing a, a huge list about, oh, he controls where I go or who I see or goes through my phone. It's all of those things. I talk to women about who makes the rules in that relationship, who's the rule maker. And if you've got a rule maker, you're always going to have a rule breaker. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, you know, you told me I can't go out with my friends but I did. So what's the result? The result's going to be violence, whether it's verbal, physical, and that keeps going on. And the fear level, they won't break the rules then. They won't break the rules. You know, I remember a woman saying to me, put me in hospital about five years ago, and he's never hit me since. And I said, no, he didn't have to. Mm. That was scary enough that you didn't ever want to go back to that place. So you obey him, you follow all his rules. And she said, yes. So then it leads to what I call entrapment, that women find it difficult to get out from under that because that person's got the ultimate control. So when they become dangerous is not necessarily while they're in control, but when they start to lose it. Mm. So she 
starts to talk to a, a social worker or she starts to talk to a lawyer. He knows that she a possibility she's going to leave me. That's when they can become quite dangerous. Yes. And again, that messaging has made it out into popular consciousness, which is good. Now, I think we realise that Mm. the most dangerous time for a woman is around the time she is leaving her abusive partner. So I feel like Mm. less and less we're hearing this, why doesn't she just leave Mm. question, Mm. which is good. Are you finding that? Are you finding that women are aware of that and that our culture in general is aware of that? Yes, I am that women are getting the message. I think for a long time women took on responsibility for trying to save the relationship, that he will stop, he just needs to get counselling, I need to be a better partner. I think that we've got that through, but, you know, but still, you know, getting through to women. When you even start to initially think about leaving, you know, it has to be safety at every single step. Is it saving lives, do you think? Or do you think women still think to themselves, no, he's an asshole, but he won't kill me? I think most uh, women initially think that, that um, he's not going to kill me. But, and sometimes I think when they read the realisation, yes, he probably could, I think then, you know, for some women, you know, it's difficult then to try and manage that. Look, one of the women in our group that had been strangled, she said, the worst memory I, or the worst thoughts I have is someone that continually told me how much he loved me, but he tried to kill me. Yeah. And she said, you know, that sits with me every day that this person was always saying how much he loved me, but at the same time he was trying to kill me. What Mm. advice have you got for people who, I know that, I know of situations where women have, reached out to people around them as in their family and their close friends and said absolutely explicitly I fear that my ex could kill me and they've kind of literally laughed it off. I guess when we're talking about domestic violence um, perpetrators and they're not an homogenous group some of them can be violent outside of that relationship and people might see them as a thug. The vast majority aren't. They go around and actually their big investment is the image making. They go to extraordinary lengths to make friends with even her friends. You know, they may even be buying her friends and family gifts and really cultivating the Mr Nice Guy and some of that's really not random. That's a purpose thing that they're doing to set up how great they are and to disbelieve it. And so particularly if a woman is being put down all the time, they're playing mind games, she's the one that might come across a bit erratic. Mm. You know, they'll see her as a bit, no, what are you on about? My message is to women that if you're not believed, keep going. You will find someone who believes you. So whether that's a police or a domestic violence hotline, um, just keep going. You know, work colleagues, someone there will believe you that if someone doesn't believe you, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or that you're making this up. If you believe someone's got the potential to kill you, then they have. Mm -hmm. So keep going until you find people that can keep you safe. And not only charming, I think about some perpetrators like your Robert Farquharson's who not charming at all and not thugs but 
seen as sort of simpletons yeah. even. Like seen as inept and, yes. and like another child. Like, yes. oh, he was – because Cindy Gambino used to say – he was like my fourth child mm. all the time. Mm. And killed his, his children. So, um, yes, but that's good advice. If no one in your actual support system is supporting you in that moment, then you've got to reach out to services. And, you know, really imploring women to reach out early, you know, reach out, get a safety plan. Um, and if you, people are um, dismissing you, then, you know, stay connected to them. But I'd be really cautious about what you share with them. So if you think that they're not going to be part of your safety plan, then you don't share that safety plan with them because, Mm. um, you know, the tighter that safety plan is and the tighter the circle of people that are going to be entrusted with your safety, the tighter, the better you'll be. Why is that? Do you think they could share it with him? Sometimes I even sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. And unintentionally could be people that may, you know, allow him into their Facebook circle or allow him, you know, to still come to family events mm. and let things slip. You know, I think that a lot of these guys that look at the power and control they have over their partner are really good on all that surveillance and checking and you know, sometimes we can be naive about how the lengths they go to. Yeah. You know, we've had guys that have got multiple Facebook profiles, mm-hmm. some as women. You just, you know, those tools they use to stalk not just their partner, but they'll do it against other family members as well. It's the the length and the effort that people go to. You just wonder where where have they got time to be doing anything else it's actually really terrifying and I wonder Betty what if someone comes to you and discloses like a friend and you really don't know the partner or you've got a perception about them what's the best way you can be supportive and an ally to them I guess our position's always to start by believing we're not there to you know investigate or you know take a neutral position like the courts some would not do so start by believing but also saying to them what you're telling me, I'm really concerned about your safety. Can we start to look at, you know, what what safety things can we put in place? And it might be, you know, securing their phone for them, securing their social media, securing bank accounts. You know, like where would they go? How would they go about doing it? Giving, making sure we resource them with, you know, numbers of people that they can call that could help them. I think the more we can resource our victims, the safer they're going to be. I'll never forget jumping in my car one day, I don't know, not long ago, maybe a year or so, and hearing that the the federal government had defunded a program that gave domestic violence victims mobile phones. And it was quite a cheap program and it's just those little, Mm. I'm going to say little things, but it obviously was massive Mm. to the people who missed out on their phones. And um, these are the kinds of programs, aren't they, Betty, that make... An enormous difference. Yeah, absolutely. The you know, for women that could have a a secure phone mm. that um, you know doesn't necessarily be one that she uses all the time. You know, just somewhere that you could leave with a safe friend or at work or somewhere. You know, even somewhere where she can leave secure documents. Um, yeah. 
if their partners want to be mm. going through the phone all the time, just making sure that any people that she might think are safe people, she doesn't store their contacts in that phone. Anyone that he might become suspicious of, you know, she tries to keep as much of that information secure as possible. Talking about how do they find the time, you know, mm. we... When I was at the domestic violence service, we started one of the first perpetrator groups in Queensland back then and one of the guys, he gave up a full-time job to find her after she left. He didn't have time to work. He, that was his job. He just... And some of the things that, you know, with the stalking behaviour that they do is initially, you know, it's hard for people to take notice of it, I think, Sometimes the more they stalk them in that relationship prior to breaking up gives you a clue of what they'll do, that really obsessive, possessive behaviour of what they do. But this guy was in that relationship. He was sending her flowers a lot and she said it was making her feel uncomfortable. Mm. After she left, he found where she was and he kept sending her ones and the police weren't taking any notice of that either. Like one of the police said to her, my wife would be over the moon if I sent her flowers every day. Yeah. Mm. And then she came home from work one day and the flowers were there, but it was a wreath. Oh, my God. And then people really took notice of, hang on, what's going on here? So, you know, sometimes the signs are subtle and sometimes they're not. For domestic violence, listening to victims, it's whatever they say is making them feel uncomfortable not what you think, you know. You, you know, if you think it's great to get it flowers every day and she doesn't, then we're listening to her. Because she knows her offender better yeah. than anybody. Yeah. And she yeah. knows the messages and what they're meant to mean. Mm. Yes, yes. Betty, you've been in this space a very long time. Can you tell us about some of the experiences that you have lived through with some of your clients? And I'm going to ask you to talk about some of the hardest experiences that you've lived through because here's something that I had never considered. When I was filming the video, there were two people there. There was a lady from a background like yours who'd worked in this space for a very long time and there was a police officer who'd worked in this space for a very long time and they were chatting and she said to him, did you see there's been a murder in this particular town? And he said, yeah, I did see that, but I've been on a break. And he said, I don't know any of the details and I haven't looked. And then I said, do you wonder something or other, like what detective's going to work it or something like that? And he said, no, we're wondering if we've come in contact with the victim. So what they were wondering was, because we all knew that the victim was a woman, that's what we'd read in the headlines, all of us, So we all assumed that she had been murdered by her partner or former partner, as you do. She was from their town. And so, of course, when you work in this space, that's what you wonder and you worry about. Do I know her? Is she a client of mine? Has she accessed the services that I run, that I work at? Can you speak about that, Betty? Absolutely. I think that goes through all our minds. When I was at the Gold Coast, there were women that we may, whose paths we may have crossed both at the service or we ran a court support program and I guess one of them, this woman had a, a protection order, a restraining order from him 
and he kept breaking that order and she was told by the police to go to the court and to get an amendment to that order to improve it, to get some further conditions on it, which she did. And the day that that new order got served on him with even tighter controls on him, that night he kidnapped her in his car and he drove her to Southport Police Station. He stabbed her in the chest. He threw the body out onto the footpath outside the police station and he went into the police station and said, this is what I think of your new orders or something to that effect. She's out on the footpath mm. and she was taken to hospital that she died. And, you know, I think that made us so aware that our workers had spoken to her at the, the court that mm. day, just how critical that any action is. She had left... But even going to the courts to get, you know, amendments to orders, that's going to have such an adverse reaction on them. You know, we're all saying that someone uses violence, it's their choice. It's never to blame victims. But, you know, every step they take, you've got to, like, wrap that safety around them. And, you know, back to the present, sitting on the, the Queensland Domestic Violence Death Review Board, We've not reviewed any intimate partner homicides where they haven't been to numerous places prior to their death. So it's not like women aren't going anywhere. Mm. We're not there to lay blame, but we are there to look at what are those systemic failures. You know, agencies may not be talking to each other or we need to close those gaps more. And, you know, I find that even quite heartbreaking sitting there knowing that there's, you know, women who were trying to get help and trying to get safe and really struggled with that. What is the problem, do you think? Are there not enough services? Is it funding? What, what do you think? I think that there's not enough, yeah, definitely, definitely not enough funding for mm. community groups. I think there's not enough, I guess, variety of services and supports available. I think that we always need a lot more training. I think we need a lot more closing the, the communication gap, the sharing information across agencies. I think there's a whole lot more. And when there is a homicide, as you said, we always presume it's the woman and we presume it's going to be their partner. But when we wait for the backstory, it gradually comes out more and more you know, that this, okay, this person had tried to leave or this person or he had a protection order on him or they'd been to the family court, you know, it'll always come out. And I guess for media it's not jumping to that conclusion straight away about, you know, this is a one-off tragedy, it won't be. There'll always be a story to that woman's life about, you know, when we they get caught up in this and, you know, we talk about one in four women live with domestic violence but you know we don't talk about the one in four men that are perpetrating it and that's what we're saying there's not nearly enough done both in terms of that acute intervention whether that's going to be through police and courts and programs but the early education you know what we're doing for boys and young men about respectful relationships I think there's so much more for us to do. Also can we talk about the family court 
how big an effect do you think the family court has on relationships, on relationships that are already stretched on people's mental health? Well, you know, we only need to really tune in and listen to what victims are saying, you know, both at the moment, the, the, the national plan to um, stop domestic violence is now seeking consultations and the Queensland Women's Safety and Justice Task Force and their experiences at the family court really are prominent in that. And I think the court is getting better at looking at domestic violence, but I think in the past they've always seen it as trying to be neutral or seen it as, a, you know, a bit of a tit for tat thing of, you know, this person saying this and that person saying that. I think we've got a long way to go to the court really looks at where's the safest place for these children to be, you know, who is going to be the safest person. And it's so difficult, you know, if women are leaving domestic violence and getting away and then the court saying, but you can't get away too far. And the ongoing abuse then it occurs, you know, with handover and the stress and those things and, you know, um, women's lives are compartmentalised, you know, women that are coming to our centre around strangulation, most of them have left and so many now are still really second second traumatisation about, you know, family court matters is huge to them. Are there any stats around violence that happens after family court intervention? I know that depression and mental health issues in men associated with their involvement in family court is huge. I know that that's an issue that the inquiry is looking at and the inquiry is always looking to. So is there an uptick in men's violence towards ex-partners after family court intervention? I think think the problem is going to be that people who, you know, people separate every day and people can separate respectfully and people can separate and they'll be angst but they can do it without violence and threats and without fighting over children you know people that have had a lot of their differences and may have had a lot of arguments but they can put the best interests of their children to the forefront and so they can work out their parenting agreements etc without fighting over the kids, you know, not seeing the kids as something to fight over. You know, from my experience, because they've by the time they get to court, they've been through a mediation process and there'll be a lot of aggression, there'll be a lot of fear, there'll be a lot of trauma, money, yes. And I think that that can impact on people's mental health, men and women, mm. to an enormous extent. I really would like to see a pro... I don't don't have a magic wand, but I think we need a process that's safer. Mm. And it, when I say safer, like physically safe, but also mentally safe for people to be able to navigate and support people through this, that, you know, always look at what what's going to be in the best interests of children in terms of their own 
emotional well-being because I think separation is huge for children. And if we can do something that's going to protect their well-being, I'm not sure, you know, parents going to court fighting over them is, is the answer. I've learned a lot today, Betty. There's yeah. so much that I wasn't aware of. And mm. I consider myself, I think, oh, I'm pretty up to date with things around domestic violence and yeah, family you, violence. But How do you stay in this space for so long, Betty? Like I always think that it would probably have a really short shelf life for people to work in, that it would just be so difficult that I think people would it'd be like social work. You know how they say... They burn oh, out. Yeah, people can't stay in social work for long. Like how have you stayed in this area for so long? Um, I think that I'm always really positive about looking at, we can talk about burnout, but we can talk about building resilience. Hmm. And I think that, you know, in our work, we like to think of ourselves as hope givers as well, that Hmm. I think if we focus on that really negative aspect all the time, and I think that, you know, if we look at women and their stories, so many women go on to having really great lives post-violence and we say to women like you're a victim you're a survivor but you're a thriver you know that Mm. women go back to university they have Mm. great careers it's not all hopeless so I think those things give us hope I think we need positive relationships in our own families you know I've got a great relationship and I've got three adult sons that aren't violent so I think that even our interactions with men, you know, that they've got to be hopeful and positive. Mm. But just on, you know, one thing I haven't touched on, that if people are talking about strangulation, please don't forget children. So if you're talking to anyone that's been strangled, please ask, have your children ever been strangled? Has he ever put hands around them or, you know, used pieces of clothing, etc.? Because in Australia, we're still not talking about that as a child protection issue either for children. So we've just now started to do that, to be talking to women about their children. And it's, we're shocked at the number of children that have also been strangled. Jesus. God. Thank you to our beautiful guest this week, Betty Taylor. She's the CEO of the Red Rose Foundation. It's a not-for-profit organisation and, as we said earlier, you can learn more about what they do at their website, redrosefoundation.com.au, where you can also make a donation. There's a link in our show notes and on our Facebook page. Thank you to our patrons for helping us keep doing what we do. Laura Savage, Courtney Bousset, Angela Edwards, Leanne Stewart, David Voigt, Kelly Purcell, Shalise Larkin and Hannah C.E. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp.
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.